All right, so we are in the middle of this series through the Minor Prophets. So the Minor Prophets are the last 12 books of the Old Testament. So starting with Hosea and ending with Malachi. And oftentimes this is low traffic area for Christians. Um, and yet there's so much grace and truth in these books. It takes a little work to understand what's going on in them. And it's worth the effort so this is our third week. We're looking at the book of Amos this morning. It's kind of a flyover view hitting the main themes of these books. And so this morning we're looking at the book of Amos. So if you're not there already, you probably want to turn there in your Bible or on your device. And uh, we'll be walking through this book and seeing some of the major themes. So there's an outline that will be reflected on the screen um, also, if you have a device, you can pull up the notes there also. All right, so just a super quick introduction because we've got a lot of ground to cover. Um, I'll try to get you out of here by one. Just kidding. Um, so C.S. Lewis wrote, you know, the Chronicles of Narnia. And Aslan is the lion that is the Christ figure in these books, right? The last book, The Last Battle one of the characters says that Aslan is not a tame lion. That's a pretty good summary of the book of Amos. He is not a tame lion. And we'll see why in a few minutes here. So first off, a little bit of introduction, a little bit of orientation to the book of Amos. We don't know a ton about Amos the man, but we do know that he was not a prophet by profession. Okay, which is abnormal for the prophets. Look at chapter 7. Okay, so got to get ready, got to be awake and alert and engaged because we're going to be looking at multiple passages here in the book this morning. So it'll maybe help keep you awake. Um, look at chapter 7, verses 14 and 15, and we'll see a little bit about this guy, Amos. So Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. And then again, chapter 1, verse 1, the very first book, verse of the book, it says, The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa. So he was a farmer, and it was a shepherd. He wasn't a prophet originally, but... God calls, oftentimes, and uses ordinary people to fulfill extraordinary callings, or even important ordinary callings, okay? That was the case with the disciples of Jesus, right? Fishermen, a tax collector, etc. And that can be the case today with you, from among us. How could God use us in both important, ordinary, and even extraordinary ways? It's just the way God works. It's like his MO. He's the one that can take a Lunchable and feed a multitude, 5,000, right? So let's stay humble and watch how God uses us totally out of proportion with who we are, okay? Let's be open to however God wants to use us. All right, so Amos, when did he actually conduct this ministry? 
Well, look at verse 1 of chapter 1 again. The words of Amos, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. It's the southern kingdom. And in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. In the prophets, whenever it refers to Judah, it's talking about southern kingdom, Israel, northern kingdom. After the breaking up of the kingdom, you can read about that in 1 Kings 12. So we don't know the date of, it also references this earthquake, two years before the earthquake, okay? So we don't know the date of that earthquake, but we know that Jeroboam II began his reign over the northern kingdom in 793 B.C. And Uzziah died in 739 B.C., so Amos' ministry is somewhere in there, okay? Probably in the 760, 750 range, okay? So that's when he ministered as a prophet. He's actually one of the earliest of the minor prophets, of the writing prophets. So the structure of this book, pretty clear, uh, breaks down into two main sections, chapters 1 to 6 and chapters 7 to 9. And then those break down further, and you can see some patterns, like in chapters 1 and 2. Notice it says, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord, and there's a structure there. And then chapters 3 to 6, hear this word three times. Chapter 3, verse 1, 4, verse 1, 5, verse 1. So you see a structure there. Those are oracles of judgment. And then there's visions of judgment in chapters 7 to 9. The first vision in chapter 7, the second in chapter 8, the third in chapter 9. So there's a lot of judgment going on in this book. It's sobering. The main theme of the book of Amos is God's justice. Not just among his people, but among the nations as well. So the Israelites at the time, the people of God at the time, expected that when God shows up, the day of the Lord comes, that it's going to be a day of judgment on God's enemies. So as this book begins and Amos starts preaching, they probably loved him at first. Look at chapter 1, verse 2. The Lord said, or Amos said, the Lord roars from Zion. See, he's not a tame lion. And utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. They've been cruel, okay? So, good, get them, God. These are the surrounding nations. You can imagine God's people hearing Amos preach about the judgment that's coming on the nations who have been cruel and oppressive and whatever, and they're saying, amen, get them. And then Gaza of the Philistines, and then Tyre, and then Edom, and then the Ammonites, okay? So all these surrounding nations that were the enemies of God's people, judgment is coming, justice is coming. And there's probably lots of amens until chapter 2, verse 6. Even chapter 2, verse 4, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, you know, there was no love lost. They were even you know, kind of antagonistic toward each other. So when the Lord says through Amos that Judah's going to be judged in chapter 2, verse 4, they probably were okay with that too. But then, chapter 2, verse 6, things start to get quiet. No more amens. 
for, the, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, which is just kind of like a poetic way to say their sins are, they're full of sin, okay? Fullness of sin, pervasiveness of their sin. I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and they sell the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. And on and on. So this starts to head us into point number two. What is going on? Why is this judgment coming on the people of Israel? Well, it's because of the way that they responded to their prosperity and because of the hypocrisy that was just pervasive among the so-called people of God. So point number two, prosperity and hypocrisy. So Amos was prophesying at a time when Israel was actually at its zenith economically, militarily. Assyria had kind of um, had a little bit of a downgrade, and so they felt secure, and they're prosperous. They're at, you know, just everything's going great. They hadn't seen this kind of prosperity since the time of Solomon, and they thought that it meant the blessing of God but it had actually become a curse. So Amos was called to preach at a time when everything was great, seemingly. So to those in Israel, it seemed like he was like raining on their parade. They resented him. So flip ahead to chapter 7 and and notice how some, especially the leaders, the priest and the king, responded to the preaching of Amos. Chapter 7, verse 10. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from this land. And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go. Flee away to the land of Judah and eat bread there and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary and it is the temple of the kingdom. Get out of here. We don't want to hear your doomsday garbage. It's not true. But how many times has it happened that wealth and prosperity has led to pride and then apathy and selfishness and then even oppression? So positions of power can often lead to taking advantage of the weak and the vulnerable. The weaker someone is and the more vulnerable, the easier it is to take advantage of them. And this is what was happening in Israel. So flip back to chapter 2 and look at this declaration of judgment that Amos preaches to Israel again. Chapter 2, verse 6, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel, or for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn turn aside the way of the afflicted. Or flip ahead to chapter 5, verse 10. 
They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Certainly this is Amos and maybe others, the faithful remnant. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, Look down at verse 12. I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. So they had built up this prosperity and amassed wealth on the backs of the poor. Sadly, this is nothing new in our world. It's happened over and over in human history. It happened in America How many professing Christians built their wealth on the backs of slaves? Slavery was a wicked, unjust institution. And the reason why it was so hard to abolish, whether in England, you know, William Wilberforce working for 30 years to abolish it, or in America, is because it was so economically advantageous, at least for those that it benefited, those who were actually making the money. So the prosperity in Israel was a whitewash, hiding the corruption and the deadness, the spiritual deadness within. I've never seen one of these shows, but you know, there's like the Real Housewives of, (laughs) you know, Hollywood, New Jersey. Okay, anyway. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? (laughs) Okay, maybe you could go like this and then I would know or like a thumbs up. Okay, anyway, I think it's like these, you know, wealthy women and, you know, it's like a reality TV show, whatever. Okay, so they were like Real Housewives of Israel. And maybe they had their own TV show, I don't know. Um, It's not even clear in the Hebrew. But they enjoyed their lavish lifestyles, but Amos speaks truth to power to them in chapter 4. Look at Amos 4.1. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan. It's a bold preacher here. He's not so much speaking of their appearance, but of their lazy, selfish lifestyle. Who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. So it's not just the women leaders. It's also male leaders as well. We see it in chapter 6. They're guilty. Um, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, which is the capital of Judah, and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, which is the capital of Israel. So living lives of ease, not concerned about the injustice in the nation. Well, it's not my problem. It's not affecting me. So have you ever heard the, the saying, religion begat prosperity, and then the daughter devoured the mother? Have you ever heard that expression? I'll say it again because I know your mind might take a second to catch up with that. Religion begat prosperity, and then the daughter devoured the mother. That's exactly what happened. That's the situation which Amos is called to preach to. So prosperity and hypocrisy, okay? These were church-going folks, but they were hypocrites and they were blind to their hypocrisy. So let's look for a minute at their hypocrisy. And again, this is not just a history lesson. This is to hold up the mirror of the word. If there's any of that hypocrisy in us, we need to see it, right? So that we can repent. It's a cautionary tale. 
So Amos chapter 5, verse 21 to 24. Listen to how God responds to their hypocrisy. I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So if you are the other six days of the week oppressing the needy, and exploiting people. Don't come in and sing as if I'm pleased with your offerings. I don't need your offerings. So that's what God's saying here. Some really hard words for these hypocrites to wake them up, to call them to repentance. So you can see how these, the selfishness and the mistreatment, the abuse, the exploitation, the indifference of the poor here in Amos is not just called unloving, though it's that. It's also called unjust. It's not just a failure of charity. It's a miscarriage of justice. So listen. Okay, I'm going to speak very carefully here because I know that these are loaded, charged terms and ideas and issues. So I'm, I'm going to be very careful here. I want you to listen carefully. In the Bible, justice has social implications. Okay, so some of you, your antennas are up because I just said social justice, okay? And you immediately react because you're thinking of the social justice warriors and organizations that have a very liberal agenda, okay? There's plenty of those organizations, Plenty of social justice warriors that are, you know, duking it out on social media, and maybe that's about it. So that's not what I'm talking about here. Certainly there are organizations that fall under that banner that are diametrically opposed to biblical justice, okay? In addition, many Christian churches and even denominations, the late 19th century, early 20th century, abandoned the gospel of Jesus Christ for a social gospel, which is no gospel at all. Okay, they were rightly concerned about societal ills like child labor and and unsafe working conditions and unemployment and poverty and malnutrition and disease and crime and racism and lynching and so forth, okay? But what happened was They left the gospel of grace behind and just did social good or sought to do social work to bring the kingdom. So, unfortunately, at that time, in many churches that preach the gospel of grace, you know, we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus. Our biggest problem is our sin, and Jesus came to take care of our sin, and we can only be reconciled to God by that grace, because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, we need to be born again. We need to be made new. We need to be reconciled to God. They focused on that, but there was a minimizing of the fruit of faith, the call of the Lord to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. So there was this focus on getting saved only, again, which is absolutely vitally important, 
but not enough focus on following Jesus as a disciple. So this social gospel movement spoke in terms of social change, but minimized or even denied the need for regeneration. They didn't take sin seriously enough. It was all out there. The sin was in the society and in the structures and all of this, rather than in here, in my heart. So you ended up with theological liberalism and all kinds of, you know, just departure from the gospel and from the Bible. So hear me, we're never going to embrace a social gospel in that sense, at least not on my watch, and I know that's the heart of the leaders here as well, but we dare not minimize or mute the societal, the social implications to following Jesus. If we do, we're going to end up minimizing or avoiding what God calls us to do and to be. Justice is actually a social, societal virtue. It has implications for society and how things work at the personal level and structural level in communities or cities. So let me press in on this a little bit more. How do you react when you hear the phrases systemic injustice? or systemic evil, or structural injustice, or institutional evil, okay? These terms can be very misleading and unhelpful because oftentimes the people that are throwing them around have different definitions, okay? So we need to make sure we define terms carefully. Many of these phrases are loaded and emotionally charged and just have all kinds of connotations that we certainly wouldn't Embrace, especially in our current political climate. But one thing is for sure. Listen, Christians, Christians, the Bible believes in, the Bible makes clear that systemic, or you could say structural evil, exists. It is a real thing, okay? We have to be concerned about personal sin as well as societal, institutional, structural worldliness, okay? This is not to embrace a worldview that all the problems are out there and I'm just a hapless victim, okay? Again, I'm being careful here. So there was a recent article on the Gospel Coalition by a guy named Akos Balog. He's originally from Budapest, Hungary, and he's the CEO of the Gospel Coalition in Australia, and he wrote this article entitled, entitled Beware the Dangers of a Victim Mentality. And he writes, I encourage you to see the, read the whole thing, but he says, I'm seeing the victim mentality go mainstream here in the West. It's through the ideology commonly known as identity politics, which neatly divides society into victims and oppressors. It's an ideology that tells various minorities that they're hapless victims of an oppressive system, whether of racism, heteronormativity, or sexism, for example. Okay? So... That is too simple. I mean, it's obviously, there's lots wrong with that. It's also too simple because it's not just you're either a victim or you're an oppressor. We're all sinners. Nobody is a hapless victim in this world, okay? So I don't mean that we feed the victim mentality, but that we embrace what the Bible says about systemic evil. 
So those of you who kind of like bristle at that idea, because I've heard it already, you know, questions or pushback or whatever on the idea of systemic evil, why? Why the pushback? Here's my question. What do you think the Bible means when it uses the word world? Do not love the world or the things in the world. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That's called the flesh, our sinful nature writ large in society, in structures and values and systems. So it's not either or, it's both and. So this, this may be helpful. So Karen Swallow Pryor is a professor of English and Christianity and culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. She used to teach at Liberty. And, and back in June, she wrote this. If you don't understand how sin can be systemic, then let's talk about the sexual revolution. Do you see how sin can be systemic? Of course it's personal. And the systemic nature of it doesn't mitigate responsibility on the personal front, but we know that the lust of the human heart is writ large and it creates current, like fast-moving current in our culture. So lust is operative in the flesh, but pornography, Pornhub, the only fans trend, and on and on, it's big business, and it creates this current, this, in fact, it's a horrific, massive flood, right? And it carries all kinds of things and people into it. It's a system that rewards and encourages prostitution, even if that's just pictures for money. But it also rewards exploitation and human trafficking. Men who lie to women and drug them and then enslave them in this system because they know it'll pay. So systemic sin is real because total depravity is real. Not only does sin impact every aspect of our individual being, it also impacts every aspect of society. One guy, Derek Rishmawi, he's a professor also, he says this, every sin can have personal dimension, the Bible calls that the flesh, demonic instigation, the devil, and systemic manifestation, the world, right? It's, we, we've known this all along, right? The world, the flesh, and the devil. And they work in concert with one another. So all that to say, we must be both and Christians, not either or Christians. The biblical gospel must be central. Absolutely. We won't ever shift from that. But that gospel leads to transformation of conscience and it moves us toward need to rescue the oppressed, to lift up the poor and needy and downtrodden and the abused and the exploited and the disadvantaged. 
And, remember, both and Christians, not either or Christians, our labor must be aimed at both personal transformation, primarily, but also, as God gives opportunity, societal transformation. Listen, we get this when it comes to abortion. We should want Roe v. Wade to be overturned and Planned Parenthood to be defunded and shut down. Right? There's a lot of systems that are unjust and wicked that need to be overturned. But we should also want all vestiges of racism and discrimination and prejudice to be eradicated from individual hearts and from the criminal justice system. So, what God was confronting in Israel was a society of those who claimed to be his people who were going through the motions of their religion and their religion was actually a sham. So they, they were in church every week thinking that especially because of their prosperity they had God's favor but the rest of the week they lived for their own selfish pleasure and they stepped on and ignored the needs of others in order to get and maintain what they wanted. That's not okay. God is making it really clear in the book of Amos that that is not okay. God is not indifferent to those things and he's also not blind to those things. He cares, he knows, and he cares. He cares how you've been treated if you've been mistreated or abused or exploited God also cares how you treat others and what you've done or what you do if you have abused or exploited or mistreated and God cares how we respond when we see others who are mistreated and we'll talk more about that under point five. But the good news is, <laughs> so there's a lot of sobering bad news here, a lot of judgment in this passage, but the good news is that God, Yahweh, is slow to anger. Okay, he does not have a hair trigger temper. He is immovable in his opposition to evil. And he's gonna speak the truth without, you know, beating around the bush. It's very clear here but he is merciful and patient and forbearing and he's quick and willing to relent. So look at how he sought to get Israel's attention. He didn't just slam them with judgment the moment they stepped out of line. Look at Amos chapter four, verse six. Look at how sometimes he, he judges, he disciplines in order to get our attention. So Amos four, six, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places. This would be cleanness of teeth that's a, a curse, not a blessing, you know. It means you didn't have anything to eat. I also withheld the rain from you. When there were yet three months to the harvest, I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. On one field would have rain. The field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Amos 4.9, I struck you with blight and mildew. Your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with a sword and carried away your horses, and I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils. Yet you did not return to me, 
declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. So when God disciplines us, he's trying to get our attention. So it's not always one-to-one. I mean, Job suffered innocently, okay? So it's not like every hard thing means, oh, what did I do wrong? But sometimes when we are wandering, when we are rebellious, he will chasten us with the rod, not because he loves and gets some sick pleasure out of, you know, beating us up. It's because he's got to get our attention to bring us back to himself. So Psalm 32, 9, be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. Let's not be stubborn. Let's be honest. Lord, search me and know me. Try me. Test my heart. If there's any offensive way in me, help me to see it and own it, repent of it, and return to you. Lead me in the way everlasting. So praise God that he is slow to anger and his discipline is intended to lead us back to him and he's quick to relent. You can look at chapter seven and see how he's quick to relent. Chapter seven, verses four to six. I'm gonna skip that for now. But if our stubborn refusal to repent and return persists, look out. Because when this lion roars, His judgment is terrible and terrifying. Look at chapter 4, verse 2. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. Imagine this lion, this poetic, you know, mixed metaphors. This roar is so great that the mountain just melts. He is not a tame lion. Amos 4.12 is really chilling. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel. This is after the, but you didn't return to me. You didn't return to me. You didn't return to me. Thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this. Prepare to meet your God. Like If you are not ready, that is terrifying. If you are not, for us, if we're not in Christ, if we haven't taken refuge in him, because we know that he's got to pay the penalty for our sin. We can't atone for our own sins. We can't get ourselves right with God. We can't do enough good works to to do that. We need a Savior. Preparing to meet your God apart from Christ is terrifying. Look at Amos chapter 9. This is really sobering. Chapter 9, verses 1 to 6. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake, and shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left of them I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. If they dig into Sheol, the grave, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent, and it shall bite them. And if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. Oh. You want God for you. 
not against you. <laughs> and thankfully, in Christ, if you are in Christ, there is no condemnation. If God is for us, who can be against us? So, C.S. Lewis, Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, Mr. Beaver, talking to Susan, says, because they haven't met Aslan yet, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. He is not safe. Sin is not safe around this lion, but he is good. Look at chapter 8. Chapter 8, beginning in verse 9. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. This is on that day, the day of the Lord, right? The day that he judges his enemies and delivers his people. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I'll bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God. So there's judgment there. But that language in verses 9 and 10, keep that in mind. And now look. Chapter 9, verse 11. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen, King David, Davidic kingship, and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. So think about this. This is pointing ahead to the, to the cross. And even this is quoted in the book of Acts, Acts 15. So the day of the Lord fell when Jesus was on the cross. He took the judgment. He became like an enemy. We are all enemies of God in our sin, and he stood in our place in the cross, taking our punishment, and the judgment fell on him so that we could be reconciled to him. And judgment fell. It was dark at noon. The rock split like this language in chapter 8 that judgment fell on Jesus so that we could be reconciled and we could be free. So that freeness, that reconciliation, the fact that his righteousness and his justice made it possible for God to be both just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus changes us and then motivates us and pushes us to go and do justice and love mercy. So final point, seek him and live. So we've got to learn from this cautionary tale of hypocrisy and we see that true worship will lead to justice and righteousness, loving our neighbor well. So again, look at chapter five. Look at these commands that come one after the other. Chapter 5, beginning in verse 4. He says, seek me and live. Verse 6, seek the Lord and live. Verse 14, seek good and not evil. 
that you may live. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. And then verse 24, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So we don't want to have blind spots. Lord, show us our blind spots. Help us not shrink back and just protect our own comfort, but instead move toward need, to meet need, to lift up the oppressed, to protect the vulnerable. And I want to just close. I mean, what, what, what's God going to lead us to do? How could we be involved in the undoing of abortion and porn and sex trafficking and abuse and racism and elderly abuse and foster system issues and like how can we live this out let me just get close with a beautiful example and then we're going to sing one song to close so if the worship team wants to come up while I'm reading this I just think this is such a beautiful example of living out this vision of letting justice roll down like waters so this comes mainly from a couple different articles, one from World Magazine, one written by Sarah Ekoff Zilstra. Um, there's a lady named Rachel Starr, okay? And the first time she walked into a strip club, she made sure she wore a turtleneck and no makeup. She also brought three girls from her church. Less than two minutes in, the bartender asked Starr and her friends, what on earth are you girls in here for? She answered, Jesus has sent me here to do something kind and loving for the women in this club. She told the bartender, can I bring a meal in? No, answered the bartender. That's the craziest thing I've ever heard. Absolutely not. Can I talk to the manager or the owner? No, he's busy. So they sat there and drank some Sprite and Coke and chatted with the bartender, her customers. And about a half hour later, she felt prompted by the spirit to go over to a man that was in another spot. She said, Jesus sent me here to do something kind and loving for the women in this club. And it turned out that the man was the owner and his mouth dropped open. You're what? She repeated herself. He told her that in his 30 years of management, he'd seen Christians protesting outside, but he had never knowingly had one in the club. He let her bring in a meal, then another. Nine years later, which this was written three years ago, so 12 years later, Star's Scarlet Hope serves 22 of Louisville's 23 clubs. One of the owners said, I've never kicked out someone who I wanted here more. But her work was taking away his employees. And he said, I have to put food in my kid's mouth. So his concern was real. Scarlet Hope has helped 600 women, and again, this is as of three years ago, transition into new careers, and hundreds have accepted Christ. More than 300 volunteers and 21 staff now minister to between 300 and 400 sex workers, and Star has started a conference to help others do the same in other cities. One of the club owners came to Jesus through the influence of Scarlet Hope and shut down her club. I had to pay $10 to get in the door, Star says of that first night. Some people are like, you paid that club $10? She laughs. I did. It was the best $10 I ever spent in my life. During the week, Scarlet Hope volunteers, volunteers drive Louisville's rough streets looking for prostitutes. They pass out roses, and these are women, by the way. They pass out roses with their business cards and bags that contain an outfit and hygiene items like deodorant, shampoo, and toothpaste. They pray with the women and tell them Jesus loves them. Star has never met a woman from the industry who wasn't abused as a child. 
Before Starr was the executive director of a ministry to sex workers, she managed sales and marketing for a media company. Ordinary person, right? In early summer 2007, she was driving past a strip club when God prompted her to go share my hope and love with the women in that place. Star, listen to the process. This wasn't just like a knee-jerk thing. Star spent the next year praying and researching. I would go every Tuesday and Thursday night with a couple of friends and sit across the street from the strip club and pray for God to open the doors to make a way for us to reach them, she said. After a year, God showed her it was time. So she and a few friends fasted and prayed for 48 hours. Then they walked into the strip club. That was the story that I started with. The next week, Star walked back into the club, this time with homemade fried chicken, green beans, and macaroni and cheese. Where are you from? The ladies asked as she handed them plates free of charge. I'm not from a restaurant, Star said. I'm here because Jesus loves you. That was enough to turn some off altogether. Several wouldn't eat because they thought the food was poisoned. But Star kept coming back. It took us six months to build any sort of trust, she said. Now I understand why trust is so hard for them. It's hard to believe in God when everybody on earth has failed you. They started approaching other clubs. Within a few weeks, some of the women began asking for help. One was addicted to heroin. Another was homeless and living in her car. Another really wanted to go back to school. Over the course of six months, she'd watched women come to work with black eyes and be literally spit upon. When she read about the same thing happening to Jesus, albeit in a very different context, she felt God was saying, I was stripped and mocked and beaten for these ladies. I died for them. Three years ago, Star pitched her board chairman an idea. She'd open a bakery since that was something she knew how to do. She'd use it to teach job skills, and she'd run it like a full-time internship, paying the women so they could transition out of the industry. If you want something to, someone to stop doing something and they don't have any idea how to get out of where they're at, you have to provide an alternative, Star said. On a wall, a sign reads, we don't hire people to bake cupcakes. We bake cupcakes to hire people. Star notes that God commands us to work, so providing dignified jobs for women who once sold their bodies to survive is priceless. They have this club of their own, and once a week for three hours in the evening, women come to Sojourn Community Church, where Star attends for Bible study and support groups for addiction recovery. Their children come, too, for programming that aims to break the cycles of abuse. About 20 women currently attend. They bring about 50 children with them. Scarlet Hope now has a presence in Louisville, Kentucky, Las Vegas, Nevada, Reno, Nevada, Cincinnati, Ohio, and Nashville, Tennessee. Let's pray. Oh God, I pray that you would shine the light into our hearts and help us to be honest where there is hypocrisy, where there is selfishness and pride and self-preservation and just self. I pray that you would help us to repent of it. And I pray that your grace, your lavish, undeserved kindness and patience and love and mercy would overflow through us and create justice that rolls down like a river. So give us clean hands and pure hearts and then help us take those hands and hearts and use them to do justice and to love mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.